0: Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldkamp. A few things I have to say. One is, we personally are involved, both as a lifestyle, a ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective, what do people need to take sometimes all the time to support their ketogenic diet. You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Welcome back for another episode of the Cueda Naturopath. It's is Dr. Carl Goldkamp. And today we have a special interview. And so I might've used the word special before, but Miriam Kalamian, she's somebody I've known for maybe about three years. And I was lucky enough to go to the first metabolic therapy conference when I think there was maybe 60 of us there. And I saw her present the, the, how is she different than other people? For one, she stole my heart. It almost had me in tears, but at the same time is that it was the information and the passion that she came out to help others that just sent a chill down my spine. So from that day and that first chill and from that message, I've seen her present uh, at least another two times and I've spent nearly a day with her at another whole round table. And I enjoy her very much. Um, I feel I know her pretty well. And she's just a, such a ball of fire, but her story and what she's doing now with her story um, we're really, uh, strike deep to your heart. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you for making time to talk.
1: Jeez, Carl. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Jeez is a medical term, by the way, that only Miriam
1: uses. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for that intro. And, um, and thank you for, for that little personal message about how, um, what is actually my son's story mm-hmm. touched your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in case your readers haven't uh, – your listeners ha- uh, aren't aware of this, uh, I came to this from a very personal place. My my son, who was only four at the time, um, in 2004 was diagnosed with a huge brain tumor that they deemed inoperable and told me what, what we had to do. And uh, we spent uh, 14 months uh, putting him through weekly chemotherapy, and it and it just totally failed him. And then we moved to another therapy, and that failed him. And then we did the unthinkable, we uh, scheduled a couple operations for this tumor. And it did, you know, remove some of the bulk of the tumor, but it did a lot of damage. And then it was growing back, and we moved to a clinical trial. It was just, it, everything was just like just sliding downhill. So, in just over two years, um, we knew we were losing him. And um, he was getting moved to palliative care, and I'm looking online about one of the drugs they want to give him, and uh, and I just – it was totally by accident that I found Dr. Seyfried's work. And for th- those of your listeners that don't know about Dr. Seyfried's work, he, uh, he's the one that uh, put out in, in 2007, in the spring of 2007, what I found was a paper on the use of a calorically restricted ketogenic diet in a mouse model of glioma, brain cancer, aggressive brain cancer. And what attracted me to that was he was basing this research that he was doing on the mouse model on, um, on, on a case study that was uh, done in the mid-90s with two pediatric patients. It's like pediatric patients, not mice. You know, let's, let's read this through. Well, now let's ask a few questions. And in a, uh, I am just eternally grateful to Dr. Seyfried that uh, he answered my emails. And, he, and within, a f- within a few hours, with this incredibly important driver in this, this whole metabolic um, approach to cancer, and uh, he was sending me papers that I didn't understand, and he was connecting me with people that I'd never heard of at the Charlie Foundation. Uh, and it didn't take very long to figure that, um, that what I was going to do was uh, do this diet for our son. And uh, I approached his, his uh, oncology team, a specialists, and they said it wouldn't work. But they also told me that it would do no harm. So uh, we just moved forward with it using the model that had been developed for kids with epilepsy, hoping for any kind of a response. And three months from the day we started, we had a new MRI, compared it to the MRI from just before he started, and there had been an amazing response to this treatment so of course we were going to continue with this he was doing great he had recovered some vision he had uh he was just feeling his quality of life was so much better so you know he's seven now in this and uh and we were able to kick the can down the road with him for six more years so we lost him five years ago but we had him for a lot longer and we were able to do some wonderful things together in that time that we had him. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, uh, someone recently said to me, and, and he passed the baton to you, and that's exactly what he did. So my son didn't have time to develop his own legacy. So, you know, it's like I'm doing it for him. That's, that's what this is all about. That's what my work is all about. And you're right. A lot of it is, is advocacy People need to understand that they don't need anybody's permission to do this diet. They certainly need to run, by, uh, run it by their team. Is there any reason, any real medical reason that I shouldn't be doing this? Okay, no medical reason. You think it doesn't, you know, diet doesn't matter? Okay, so I can eat what I want? Oh, you're, you know, that's that's where I, I take it as a... Uh, um, if there's no medical reason for not doing it, why not give it a try? Why not do it for a few months and see if you can make an impact on your cancer?
0: No, absolutely. What, some of the, the lessons within the lesson, and you're right about uh, Rafi passing the baton to you, is that it starts off as mom, you know, an educated mom, you know, wondering what to do. And I think that that's, uh, I, I think, or, or parent in general will say, it's like, what do they do? took it upon yourself i'm going to read about this and so just that spark and you at some point decided you know maybe it was after you got these these tremendously negative recommendations and after the surgery you decided to say Say, put it on your shoulders and find out. So that was number one, that you were inspired to just take action yourself. The second is you went right to the source of what I consider the cutting yes. edge research in keto. You didn't go back and say, I'm going to go to the library, whatever the local library is, or I'm going to go to PubMed or Google Scholar and, and bury myself there. You found some of that. No doubt you did part of that, but then you said, I'm going to call these guys, email them, call them. I'm going to find out, talk to the horse's mouth. Few people do that. And, and, in and, and what you've said before about the, Rafi, the bright light that he brought to the world uh you you took that and you went further with it you know it impelled you to say self-advocacy is a big big deal and don't ever drop that baton
1: yeah i'll tell you i I, and i i want everyone to know how naive i was to all this i was not i had been told don't go online to look, look this up, and of course I'd gone online, and this was in, when he was diagnosed in 2004, and the prognosis was so dismal that it was just terrifying, so then I just didn't, really didn't do that again until we had this problem, and this drug that he was on um, was toxic to his his kidneys, and we hadn't been told that when they, um, when they initially put him on the drug, he'd only been on it for a few weeks, but in, when I found out, and that was it, it was just totally Serendipitous that I uh, that I stumbled on this research, and I was really naive. I wasn't used to. I was a retailer. I wasn't used to reading science, um, and and so yeah, I, it was naivete that drove me to, to and and you know just desperation that drove me to contact um, at Dr. Seyfried in the first place. Uh, and that he responded was nothing short of a miracle, although in my communication with him since, of course, I understand why he did respond. He's passionate about his work. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I had uh, – when we, when we realized he was failing the clinical trial and, and that he w- was most likely going to get moved to palliative care, um, it, you know, I contacted uh, 12 members of the brain Tumor Consortium. These are all the pediatric top notch doctors in the country. Twelve of them, same small paragraph. It was just a short paragraph about what would you, you know, a little bit of history and what would you do next. Only seven of them responded. And out of those seven, I got six different opinions. So that's when I I woke up to the fact that uh, there was no consensus on what to do next. They have this gold standard that failed them miserably. And then after that, it's like, well, you could do this, you could do this, you could do that, or you could just do nothing at all and let them go. That's what one doctor said. Just let them go. Yep. And <laughs> that was just unacceptable. Um, not without a fight.
0: No, absolutely. It, it's, it's kind of despicable on one side. What I, what I admire also about the process that you went through is that um, that would have embittered a lot of people. I mean, you start out, well, you say naive and, uh, Dr. Seyfried, he, he responds to the innocence <laughs> and, and the thoroughness and the honesty of a, of a good question. And so I can sort of see why, why that way is so he was open to you saying, I will help and do what I, you know, and also you were asking very specific questions. You weren't like, give me the reader, reader's digest version of your research in 30 seconds. You know, you were after you had read his work, then you, and he appreciated that, i sure. But, um, no, so you, there's a lot of negativity you avoided and you used it all and you posit it all as, as constructive things to do. And I think that was, uh, I think that was very wise. It, that's an, that's imminently part of who you are. Uh, it's, it's not to get stuck up with the negative and to do your own work and get going on it. Um, and I think that your word naivete is absolutely right. Be naive enough to think that people will care and yeah. uh, don't prejudge that. Just go out and do it. And, uh, not everything's a hundred percent, but you'll get some of it back for sure.
1: Yeah, and, and the other part of the, the advocacy for, for us early on came out of the other part of that, the desperation, and that is, you know, you're being told that there is nothing else, and they're saying it in such a matter-of-fact tone. Oh, yeah, well, he has a, you know, we're going to do this, this new therapy with four drugs that's going to result in hospitalizations and transfusions and infections and all kinds of things, and he's got a one-in-ten chance of any kind of a response that might hold for 18 months so it's like, what we're gonna be, we're gonna be doing this to our kid who's seven, and this is the, you know, the chance of a response, and uh, it just didn't seem acceptable. Well, it wasn't acceptable. It was like if if we're gonna if we're gonna lose him that quickly, you know, it's gonna be with a, a, a it's not gonna be through hospitalizations and transfusions. He's gonna be at home in the loving arms of his parents.
0: Mm, yep.
1: So, uh, but then to come on this. And like I said, my my hope was that there would be any kind of a response because that it, it just didn't seem reasonable that there could be something that would that would you know as simple as a change in diet, just taking away the carbs, just taking away the carbs. It wasn't about Carl. It wasn't about healthy fats. I didn't understand healthy fats then, and the 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 uh, information from Johns Hopkins on how to do this diet didn't. They were using the they were using a formula, okay, for kids that couldn't eat young babies and things, and you know people that were being tube fed. They were using a formula that was made from hydrogenated soybean oil. So, <laughs> I mean, at least my son was eating real food, but yes. it, it was like, you know, ham roll-ups with uh, cream cheese. It was yep. it wasn't like high quality food. It was just let's get the macros right yep. first. Let's get let's get the the carbohydrates out of his diet, the sugar out of his diet. Let's, you know, limit the amount of protein because that's an important part. That's mm-hmm. the nuance for cancer mm-hmm. as opposed to all the other information on the internet about weight loss and diabetes and all of that. It's all higher protein than what you need to do. Protein's an important part of keto for cancer. And, and then, you know, uh, boost the fat. So, you know, basically for him, we did it through, uh, through dairy Um, dairy fats, but that's not an option. Like if you have a a estrogen sensitive cancer, that's not really a great option. Um, But we did it. We got this amazing response. And then we were on the path. I went back to school. I learned about this because, you know, like I said, I was in retail. What did I know about nutrition? Uh, So I went back to school, got, got my degree, got my certification. So as I went along, each uh, it, it was like it steps along the path. So his diet got better and better, you know, and, and ultimately, honestly, if we knew then what I have learned since then, and if we had applied it from day one of his diagnosis, I I do believe he'd still be with us. Well,
0: it, it begs the question. So in connecting that, it, it, uh, some variables in that, what would you change in the diet that actually you did, which was a sensational change from where he was, to now what you know, would you change any of that? Would you say, hey, I think I'd take dairy out, or would it be some other aspect? Would you change your ratios? Would you be, you know, more would you along Tom's work, Dr. Siegfried's work, would you think about uh, you know, maybe metformin or glutamine? you know, uh, agonists and so exactly, on? Exactly,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. very good question. Thanks for bringing that up. I think the basic diet would have been the same, except it would, you know, it would have been higher quality. Also, in the first few months when we got that great response, I should say I was doing it wrong. That when you talk about the ratio, the, the ratio that came from the epilepsy world of like four grams of uh, fat for every combined um, one gram of carbohydrate and protein you know, all calculated out by a, um, a, a ketogenic registered dietitian. You know, that's what they did for epilepsy. And I thought I was doing that because nobody wanted to help us. So I was doing it from just reading this, this book and going looking at the Charlie Foundation and trying to figure it out. And actually, I did it instead of doing it grams, which was totally foreign to me, I did it um, by calories. So his, his diet wasn't as rigorous in that sense. But the thing that we were doing right was we were limiting the carbs and, you know, we had a a target for protein that we were meeting and we had done it calorie restricted. So when you put all of that together, that's the response that we got. It wasn't about, you know, having the highest quality foods. It was about doing that part of the diet, right? Limiting the carbs, having a target for protein and then increasing the uh, amount of uh, fat. But for him, um it, it really you know was a low-calorie diet as well, and that's – in brain cancer, I, I think that's really important to get the response that, that you need. That makes it – that's one of the nuances in working with people with cancer. If they're already low weight, we've got to figure some workarounds to this, during um, the calorie thing. But um, yeah, we got this in, incredible response, so I needed to know more. And I did. I got, you know, I learned more. But it was over the course of several years, it wasn't like I, I got up to speed with it immediately. Right. So the thing that would have been different was not really the diet part of it. It, um, it, it would have been the things that, like, like what you mentioned, the metformin possibly, not to lower his glucose because the diet did a great job of that, but to impact uh, – it's an anti-cancer drug on other levels, uh, by upregulating some um, healthy pathways, um, uh, signaling pathways, and um, and inhibiting other pathways that are not um, uh, that uh, allow for cancer progression, um, we would have been tracking his uh, insulin and his uh, IGF one. We would have been looking at some parameters in the in blood work, and then maybe adjusting uh, somewhat to that. But being a child, that's a whole different ballgame than when I'm working with adults. Uh, so, yeah, I would, have, uh, I would have put in supplements. I was afraid. I, I really didn't. The only things we were supplementing really were uh, some of the, the minimal uh, minerals because that's what they did on the diet for epilepsy. They supplemented with uh, calcium uh, because kids, um, for a lot of reasons, yeah, uh, kids don't lay down uh, bone as well. Um, that's the time that we lay down bone is, it, you know, it's, it's pediatric years. It's not, uh, it's not the, you know, postmenopausal years that are important for laying down bone. Uh, so, you know, we had some concerns um, there. But, you know, basically it was just the diet and a little bit of uh, mineral supplementation and we didn't get into all that rest. But boy, has there been an explosion in all of these other things that we could have done. In that um, he was in a clinical trial at one point and they used a, um, um, a, a, a statin-like drug called phenofibrate. Well, there is evidence that uh, care oncology has developed this protocol using a statin drug, using metformin, using an alkylating agent that is safe and non-toxic for even babies, and then a, uh, an, uh, an antibiotic that doesn't like wipe out your gut bacteria. Uh, and they kind of pulse these things, cycle them in. They have a protocol, and they're extending life in, in, um, in brain cancer as well with that protocol done. I have to say, I haven't said it yet, as an adjunct to another care protocol. So whether somebody's going, you know, with a conventional protocol, this can be an adjunct to the care. It's not a standalone therapy. And, um, or, you know, pe- some people that I work with. Don't want to have anything to do with uh, conventional care, and I will talk to them about their options that they may not have known of in conventional care. How to approach their team—that's the advocacy part. Right. Um, but you got to be doing something alongside yep. the diet. You can't just do the diet alone. That's excellent.
0: Yeah, and it's very easy to be extreme one way or the other. You know, they, for whatever reason, people had a bad experience, and they're all going to go the other way, and that's equally dangerous. If you ask me, that's coming from a naturopath. Um, and so you, you do have to have that team, as you say, and I always thought that the most dangerous patients were the ones that weren't going to do that. And they somehow think you were, there's a parallel universe and everything exists in that that universe is going to exist. And you're going to tell them what to do. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, That's impressive. You know, it comes up to the, uh, and I know you've referenced this before, it comes up to the whole HIV uh, paradigm of how that world grew and they got to the cocktail and they realized, you know, three different things at the same time, um, often on a rotational basis, created quite a immune challenge. And so that was often one of the the models that came out of that. And so I sort of see that happening here as well.
1: Well, and you know why that happened, Carl? And I go into that a little bit in um, the uh, TED talk that I did. Uh, and and that was uh, the reason they had been testing for HIV. They had been testing in, in clinical trials, one drug at a time and everything was failing. And these people were dying by the you know thousands. They're dying every day. So not thousands, it was still, uh, they weren't making any progress with HIV. And then it was this group of really passionate people. And it included the, the people with HIV, their loved ones, the people, the, the passionate doctors that were working with them and watching this unfold, and researchers. And, and they realized that this combination therapy had much more impact in it, and, but the conventional world wasn't accepting it. But these people, through their own advocacy, that's what Dallas, uh, Dallas Buyers Club was about, Um, through their own advocacy, they really, they changed that. They brought it to the tipping point. It could no longer be ignored. And now we look at HIV as being a a manageable disease, manageable for a lifetime.
0: Right. That evolution is really interesting. Uh, the, The respect that the doctors had to give the patients and go back and forth in that way, you know, that they didn't have all the answers they needed to hear. And you also dealt with Um, I was in, I was in med school at the time. We had an HIV clinic and I was surprised at the education and the informedness of the HIV patients. I mean, they were clearly on par. And so they were peers to come in and I had never been in a situation that was that sort of uh, equal, equal, you know, you were just different by what you do, but not necessarily more knowledgeable or, and and certainly you didn't carry any trump cards.
1: (laughs) I'll, I'll tell you people that come to me with you know, and there's well, if they come to me with uh, with with brain cancer, I basically got it down. But sometimes they'll come to me with like some very rare cancer, and boy, they've done the deep dive already. They know more about what they need to do. I'm just there to guide them, to share what I know, and to, you know, offer some tweaks here and there. Uh, and it, but boy, they're experts on what they do. As a matter, you know, my son's a pediatrician who is just a lovely man. Uh, and very supportive of what we were doing, Um, understood it on many different levels. Uh, And he said, as I went off to my first poster presentation, just terrified that I, you know, I was going to be among doctors and researchers that, um, and I, and what did I know? What did I know? You know, know, what kind of an imposter was I? And he said, no, don't worry about this. They're, they're there because they're curious. They want to learn. And you're an expert in your child. And that's exactly what happened. I sat in on something. It's like, oh, this is going to be way over my head. These people are just, you know, they're the leaders in the field. And what am I going to gain out of sitting here? I'll just be quiet. And I sit down and for the next 45 minutes, these people are asking me questions about did I do this? Did I, you know, did I try this? What was I doing here? They really were there to learn. And that's what's different between that group of passionate people and, and, and the, just the general clinic, uh, you know, oncology clinic where they have an algorithm, they're going to pop your genetics into an algorithm and they're going to pop out a therapy for you that may have a 40% chance of response. But they don't tell you it's going to be a 40% chance of response. They just tell you this is, you know, this is this, the, the care protocol we have for you. And I think if more people understood that that's the that's the, the the way it's done that's the game and that's the way the game is played that they would go well wait a minute am i going to subject myself to this for a 40% chance of response why aren't we looking at what might have an 80% chance of response and that's where you start looking at chemosensitivity testing or just diving a little deeper on you know on your own or with the help of you know someone else Um, and, and finding what might be this combination of things that might give you that 80% or that 90% chance of a response, um, instead of just settling for, this is the drug you're going to receive, you know, every other week for six rounds. And then we're going to assess that's, that's crazy to me. I don't, I don't get it. That part is crazy to me.
0: There's two things I want to say. One is, um, uh, far be it for me to have sympathy for the oncology group, but uh, of MDs in general, but that's uh, too much of a stereotype. But what I understand is the fear of stepping outside of one's scope of practice and the liability. Exactly. So, and so I think that that's in there. I used to just think that they're on thinking and they're following, as you say, the algorithm. I think that it is that, but they've been, you know, I have five years, you know, I've been here 15 years, I have five years to retirement. I'm not going to screw it up because I'm, you know, following this errant, really interesting plan there. So I think, unfortunately, that's it. The other is that, um, <clears throat> you know, when people look into this, because this research, is, as we both know, is still pretty cutting edge. Uh, it's it's at- actionable. It's within reach of everybody. Um, but if people start looking, thinking they're going to find 15 studies that endorse this or N- N- NIH has <laughs> given, you know, the, the high five behind all these things, that is so far from the truth. And they have to be willing to to be at ease with a few paltry um, hopefully well done studies or even uh, anecdotal stories that pile up spell some sort of truth. So it's pretty much in that era that they're in in that area that they're extracting what they want to do and, and where a lot of our conferences and all these informations come from. Um, would you say that that's kind of like part of it as well? When you looked in all these things, it's like, well, this is this study. I like this study, but, you know, nobody else is saying this. So you dismissed that majority voice and went with a minority voice. And that's something.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right there. Um, I and that's a part of the advocacy that I talk to. When, you know, when I'm working with people, is um, you know, don't expect your team to be supportive or on board with this. Just don't let them become an obstacle to it. Get learn from them, communicate with them, tell them what you're doing. But um, you're basically going to be on your own in this world because they can't stray outside the bounds of their profession. If they do that, they're going to be, you know, ostracized and and um, marginalized within their own community, and they certainly don't want that. I could tell you right now, though, I'm working with a doctor. Uh, he's an oncologist, and he's off at a huge um, meeting this weekend. Fifty thousand people. Fifty thousand. That's
0: huge. <laughs> That's really huge.
1: <laughs> um, he understands that ketogenic is a great idea. He is extremely disappointed that um, they're not offering a single session on this, in this big meeting that he's going to, you know, he's got this knowledge. And it is these, these doctors, these, these single doctors strategically placed. um, And, you know, and I'm not going to discuss his placement, but I can tell you Memorial Sloan Kettering Memorial Sloan Kettering, big cancer center. Mm-hmm. They are doing a clinical trial right now for newly diagnosed, not salvage therapies, newly diagnosed endometrial cancer. They are actually providing the food for uh, for women who are going to be in that arm of it, where uh, they're providing ketogenic foods and they're going to compare um, their surgical outcomes, the tissue from the surgical outcome, with uh, outcomes from uh, women on the usual diet. Memorial Sloan Kettering. So what happens there is I, I get an, an email. I get emails from people all the time that, um, you know that I'm not directly just questions and things. And this one woman, one woman, she told me, I'm a I'm a patient at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and I was getting my chemo infusion today, and my daughter had told me about ketogenic diet. So I asked the doctor, and he said, you know. I don't know anything about this, but you're the fourth person that's asked me today, so I, I better find out a little <laughs> more. So that's because he's at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and they're doing a study. And when you do a clinical trial like that, you have so many hoops you have to jump through. And so here, whatever drove the passion of the, of the investigator here – it is not just a single tiny hospital somewhere that is that is having a hard time recruiting even five patients for this study. This is Memorial Sloan Kettering. They deal with lots of endometrial cancer. They're going to have a huge pool of candidates to draw from. Another example, Carl, is uh, Cedar sinai in, um, in uh, California. Uh, they are doing ketogenic diet alongside uh, standard of care in newly diagnosed Glioblastoma—the the the devastating prognosis there—and uh, and you know Jethro, who the um, lead investigator there, is seeing some really you know great um, glucose and ketone changes in uh, in people who are signing up for that. And I have to say, I know this because I'm working with one of it's like a a, a patient of his and a client of mine, and uh, I'm just thrilled that this is. Is like working its way into some of the more high-profile places. That's gonna that's gonna be what catches the attention of uh, uh, other oncologists, and it's gonna free them up. Well, if Memorial Sloan Kettering can do it, and Cedar Sinai can do it, and they don't see any harm in it, and it passed the institutional review board, uh, you know, maybe we can be a little less of an obstacle to our patients that want to try this. Maybe we won't throw up the diet, doesn't matter to them. Maybe we'll say, listen, I got no objections to it. Um, Just keep us in the loop on what you're doing.
0: Absolutely. Excellent. Yeah, I think it will take institutions that are forward thinking like this to sort of pull it forward, obviously. Um, But I think that day of being part of the convention, and we've used that word a lot, conventional medicine and so on, but I think that's breaking up. I think that's breaking up because there's just a lot of uh, populism that is saying, you know, it's not working, and uh, if you want our patronage in any form, start opening up those doors to alternative, not even just alternative uh, therapies, but to keto specifically, because there's such a groundswell of information about it out there. But yeah, they're the ones that are going to bring it in. Um, That's a big deal wow and
1: it, it, it's it's interesting because that has definite upside but it also has the downside and that is people go online and they get misinformation or they're reading information that might be relevant for weight loss um, uh, or metabolics uh, and, but it might not be a great idea for someone with cancer so uh, and or they're they're looking at other diets that claim to be anti-cancer. I get that a lot. The, you know, okay, I got to alkalize my body. Well, there's only, that can only go so far. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you alkalize your body and you're going to be dead. So that's that's a good thing. You can't influence it in that, that way. Um, You can alkalize your urine, but, um, and that's, that's fine. But as far as, you know, cancer, Thriving in an acidic environment, that's absolutely true, but the acid that it thrives in is the acid that's created by the cancer cell by fermenting the glucose. It's not about the acidic or alkaline foods that you take in. It's about what's going on in the cancer cell. Can you shut that down? Um, Of course, not totally. We need some glucose there, and cancer cells are going to be greedy about their use of it, but boy, we can make an impact. We can slow down the production of that acid within. The cancer cell and slow down the um, the spread of the cancer. Absolutely. You
0: know, that's the connection that I make when people go, Oh, you're going to alkalize? You know, we need, we need to be on an alkaline type diet. That was a fad for, I don't know, 15 years. Maybe it's, it's still it out still there. It still is. Yeah. Still is. It still is. And yeah. so, what I try to do to bridge that is, is say basically just what you you said. I say, You know where that came from? Let me go back to the kernel of that. It's because, yes, cancer does grow in an acetic environment, but it doesn't mean your body is in an acetic environment. And so, the, you, you take the grain of the truth and you put it back to where it was supposed to be, which is what what you right. just did sometimes they can let go of that issue and seeing that you know they weren't wrong they were just a little bit unfocused and then get behind as opposed to having to battle wait a minute everybody else says i should be eating alkaline foods and you'll say well this is where we're talking about this part exactly um yeah. interesting i wanted to just shoot for a question out of the blue back to dairy um and one of the things that you would track you're saying is the igf-1 and uh, from my perspective, it's a whole different track of being a naturopath. But you know, dairy was uh, a remarkable thing to remove from people's diet and bring back in. You know, I mean, if there was, I, I jokingly say that, you know, if you took out uh, dairy, wheat, and uh, prescribed fish oil on a reasonable basis, you know, you would. Have helped 80% of your patients, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then yeah. obviously some got more sp- uh, sophisticated if they were cancer patients or whatever else, but it was a huge success. And so, you know, now I'm in this world and I'm thinking, you know, um, not that everybody has to be without dairy. I'm not advocating that, but there's a, I, you know, wanted to drill deeper onto the whole dairy thing and find out why was that? So I'm coming from the world of, I know dairy is an issue for a lot of people, not everybody. And why is that? I never quite knew that other than the case of morphine story, which is interesting, but that doesn't explain everything. And so for you back with the IGF-1, do you put those, You are you connected in any way in your mind or is it connect, are those connected in any way in your mind, uh, the dairy consumption IGF-1 to the degree that that's important to track maybe, you know, or not?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Thank you. Uh, that yes, the, in, in my book, I, I lay out the beginnings of why, um, why we have to think about this in cancer. And there's two parts to dairy. There's the dairy fats. They're a problem on, on that level for people um, with estrogen-sensitive cancers. And that can be prostate cancer as well, um, just a hormone-sensitive cancer. Uh, there are estrogen metabolites in dairy because cows make a huge amount of estrogen they produce a huge amount of estrogen because they're genetically modified to you know to um to produce a lot of milk and they're kept pregnant so there's all this estrogen and that estrogen metabolite does not appear to be taken apart in the in the gut enough to uh sort of just discount it and um, it's so similar to human estrogen that it may be connecting with those estrogen receptors and allowing cancer to proliferate. Uh, I don't think that's universally true. I think there's all kinds of like uh, individual variation there. But in general, if you've got an estrogen-sensitive cancer, I would say you've got to at least limit the dairy fats. Now, the dairy protein is a different story, and we got two main types of dairy protein. We've got the whey and we've got the casein, so on the casein end of it, um, that's where most people have, if they're going to have a dairy allergy or sensitivity, it's going to be to the casein pro- um, portion of it. But the, the more significant thing in cancer is that dairy is anabolic. Dairy proteins are anabolic. They are intended to turn baby animals into full-grown animals. So they have growth factors in them, a lot of growth factors in them that are going to promote this. So uh, like, there's there's all kinds of people can find in a heartbeat. You can find studies that show the um, uh, independent effect of uh, whey protein and to a lesser degree casein in stimulating an insulin response that's independent of a rise in glucose in other words you have this bolus this is what they use in the research a bolus of this dairy protein and it stimulates this this huge uh response insulin response well that's because what's going on there is a signaling insulin is a signaling it's not just about moving glucose out of the bloodstream it's a signaling hormone to to cells to say hey We've got enough nutrition on board right now. We can grow. This is a period of growth, so have at it. Here's all, you know, here's all the building blocks you need. And, and then this flood of building blocks comes in in the form of amino acids, and you get this, all this protein synthesis going on, which is not a great thing in cancer. Right. So you're, you're sending the signal. And the IGF-1 issue, when, when insulin is high, IGF-1 tracks with it. Mm. So IGF-1, which is another growth hormone, it stands insulin-like uh, insulin-like growth factor one, um, and it it has upregulated sense um, uh, receptors on cancer cells. So you're you're signaling on that level too. Hey, there's there's uh, there's reasons to grow here, and so what I suggest is that people. Um, you just really limit a couple of tables look at look at cheese as a condiment and and that's about it. It's a garnish on your salad it''s, it's uh, it, that's all you're using it for here and and actually that same insulin response holds true of all protein foods. All protein foods to some degree are going to stimulate insulin for that reason that it says it's a signaling that there's nutrition on board and we, we can have at it. Um, So, when you lower that um, insulin response, either through lowering carbohydrate, and so you're not getting the spikes in insulin, but also from targeting protein at a much lower level than, you know, paying attention to it, basically, then um, you're also, you know, creating austerity mode. So, now the cells, the signaling that happens is, oh, got to tighten our belt. There's not enough nutrition for everybody. Let's keep our healthy cells going, but, you know, these aren't so doing so great. Let's just kind of like cut them loose. So that's our goal with keeping protein low but sufficient in cancer.
0: Excellent. I, what I've found in my semi-superficial diggings into dairy is that the IGF-1 from dairy, from cows, is identical to the ones in human so it's, you know, it's like, it's a direct pass through and then actually it signals our liver to produce more IGF-1. So it gets kind of a, a twofer and all that. Um, the other thing that I've explored, it's, I always find dairy is this thing that has a gravitational pull on people's desire greater than what it actually is. Meaning that there's, we know it's the, the case of morphines, but right, you know, you take the biggest uh, mammal which is the cow, which produce milk. and we like that because they're a big milk factory as opposed to goats or sheeps, or they all produce milk, but you choose the biggest udder and you make the most milk. And so, But the point is, when the dairy, when the casein breaks down uh, and it breaks into the case of morphine, that piece that breaks off, that little piece for cow is strongly, much strongly uh, an opioid. You know, it hits more opiate receptors. In part, I go, that's really interesting. I wonder if it's like size versus small. You line up all the mammals and and humans are, you know, towards the top but far from the top. I mean, certainly they're not even a quarter of a cow and they're well behind the apes and so on and so forth. But I would bet uh, that that case of morphine is less potent the smaller you get. In other words, you have a big animal, it has a big need, to, like calf to get you know the IGF and all the other nutrients, the all anabolic things. You're going to come back and you're going to feed on me because we need to make you grow over a short period of time and that drive. And so it, so the case of morphine that humans produce in breast milk, and an interesting comparison with breast milk is um, that the protein in breast milk, which is casein and whey, but it's 20% casein and 80% whey, whereas cows, it's 80% uh, casein and 20% whey. Um, you know, and so that whole spectrum, uh, you know, it's that whole opioid part. So often when people ask, you know, where are you? They think, I, I hate that expression. I'm taking things away from them. <laughs> you know, I go, I'm trying to give you a story and if you're motivated enough and if your reason's large enough, you won't mind doing without these things. And there's other things you can put into place that are equally satisfying. You haven't discovered yet, but it's, it, it's such a gravitational pull, you know, for cow's milk products. You know, it's, it's just, you feel, you see it in their hand in this sort of mental struggle. And so a a little bit of that Gruyere cheese or a little bit of the Camembert, it's like, oh, it sets them back into opioid heaven again. And it's such a disproportionate, you can say a little bit about, you know, wheat and and, uh, glutamorphines, but it's nowhere near the case of morphines. Um. So it's, yeah, I,
1: that's a uh, that's new information to me about that relationship. The eighty twenty versus the twenty eighty. That's new to me, and it does make sense. I mean, you've got a uh, a mammal that has to grow fast um, uh, in order to survive, uh, and so yeah, you want to create something that um, keeps uh, them coming back. Drive to to consume more of the product that's going to get it get it there. Whereas humans have a much longer um period of time for for growth oh absolutely so, and
0: well protected you know it's not like you know mom's always there where's like the, where's the the calf stops uh suckling he walks away and so that puts him in harm's danger you know it's not like he's put in the crib in the nursery he's taken care of you know and we have generations of of uh, parents protecting their their youngins but no cattle it's you got a moment at the at the faucet and after that you know don't get killed because we want you coming back by dinner time kind of thing Interesting. Yeah, a little bit off the side. But um, so relevant for that. So yeah, it's funny. One of the questions I had up front was about dairy. And so we've really drilled into that. Do you ever get into some issues about fiber? I mean, where you fiber is this perennial issue that comes up when we're breaking away into keto that it's like, you know, we're obviously dropped down on carbs. People go, what about fiber? I'm not getting the fiber. Well, they're getting the greens. But how do you check in on that? Do You go, it's a minor issue. I'm not even going to get there. Or...
1: You know, um, I am not that concerned about fiber unless the person I'm working with is concerned about fiber, and then we try to work it in in a reasonable way. One of the problems I see with um, with supplemental fiber is like people think, well, they've got to take all the psyllium during the day, and if you don't time psyllium right, you're actually going to be pulling some of the minerals and you know other nutrients. Sometimes the medications aren't going to work that that you're taking, um, they're, because they're uh, they're going to just become part of that gel that's moving through your system so the timing of uh, supplemental um, fiber is important if you're just getting it out of like uh, avocado having seven grams of fiber or some uh, you know chia seeds or flax seed having some fiber in it um, uh, and the, the other thing is like why why do we believe fiber is so important <laughs> that's it that's it and, and I would say we know that colon bacteria thrive on the product of this fermentation which is the butyrate so how do we get butyrate in the system if we're not taking in a lot of fiber well we are providing our bodies with beta hydroxybutyrate is that also going to help with colon cells we, we know that colon cancer uses this butyrate unless it be i mean colon cells use this butyrate until they become cancerous and then they prefer glucose so what's that telling you right there so it's 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 like yes, enough fiber coming from a natural source. Why not? Now there's a, that whole group of people now just sort of discounting the idea of any of that at all. The um, uh, you know and just eating meat and fat, meat and fat, and um, and not you know not being concerned about the fiber. And then the other end of the the you know the other end of that spectrum are the people who want to do ketogenic as a as a plant based. They don't want to have any animal products in there at all. They want to be plant-based, and that's going to have a lot more fiber. But are the outcomes better for one over the other? I honestly don't think so. I think the outcomes are better for people that are sort of in the middle. They're, if you're on a ketogenic diet, your protein needs are, are set lower. Your target's set lower. You're not taking in as much animal protein, you know, whereas you might have had a six-ounce burger before, three-ounce burger you know, to use a, just a, a, like a not so great example, but there's a, you know, a three ounce burger is going to work for you instead of this, you know, huge salmon filet, half of that's probably going to be plenty. A checkbook size is going to be plenty for you to, so you're not eating tremendous amounts of animal protein and you are counting the vegetable protein that's in your diet. The seeds, nuts and seeds that, that have it some, you know, the vegetables have it too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, uh, two concepts that I've, sort of trying to work out my own mind and my own diet. One was kind of, as you talked about, was he uh, zero carb, the, the protein and the fat. And, uh, the other concept was the whole protein sparing fast, which to me is, uh, I don't quite call it a fast, but that's what it's called and been around for a while. And it's a hypocaloric, uh, protein diet. Um, and there is inherent fat in there, of course, and they do kind of just fine. And so, you know, I'm, this whole idea of certainly four or five years ago, I would have never even thought of zero carb and thinking that's an extreme, those are out there with survivalists. (laughs) You know, I'm just not going there. But now I've seen more and more sensible people that are doing it in, in the medical profession. And I don't mean Sean Baker, who's kind of the poster child of this, but others, and I go, huh. And then I go, is this the next little ripple in the ketogenic diet? You know, maybe even getting up to, Tom Siegfried's, you know, application, though, it's a zero carb, um, plus the other aspects we've talked about. Um, it's interesting, you know, it's a head shaker to me that, that people are, they don't seem to have nutritional deficiencies. They just, I'm thinking, wow. Um, and a lot of them have been doing it for 10 or 20 years and I go, I don't know what to say other than it's a head
1: scratcher. Well, I tell you, I think there's a lot of, uh, our, our evolution has allowed us to use, uh, A variety of things for fuel, and to shift almost seamlessly between these different fuels based on what the availability is. And of course, that's all changed uh, when availability is 24/7. the The rules change when you get cancer. So, what might have been good as far as a prevention or maintenance kind of plan. Uh, or like you mentioned, protein-sparing fast for somebody who is uh, extremely overweight. That's, that's where the research comes from is morbidly obese people doing protein-sparing fasts and having incredible success in getting their body weight down and improving metabolic function. But when you get a diagnosis of cancer, it's so many of the rules change. And I think – I honestly believe that's, that is one of them. Again, I think there's variations And a lot of people that I have talked to about their zero carb, they're not really doing zero carb. They say, well, you know, they're not just relying exclusively on animals. They are still taking in something, maybe in the form of, you know, nuts here and there or an occasional splurge on some berries in the summer. Um, Even the study that – the the soft palate cancer that was done in that group um, – What are they? Hungry, I guess. Um, uh, Yeah, it was a Hungarian study. Um, Soft palate cancer. They could arrest progression of the disease, but they didn't change anything. The tumor was stable, but it didn't go away. So, yes, that's a wonderful outcome in soft palate cancer. But would that be true if you had 10 people with soft palate cancer? Would they all have that same result by going to what was – said to be meat and fat. But if you read the, the paper, you see that there were excursions away from that um, and progression related to the excursions away from, from that. So, um, I, you know, you, you got to look at, you know, it's just like these uh, clinical trials too. How closely are they really monitoring what somebody is eating? So, I could say I'm eating a ketogenic diet But unless I give you the numbers to prove it, unless I show you what my ketone levels are, how do you really know I'm ketogenic? How do you know what degree of ketosis I'm in? You don't without that kind of hard data.
0: So speaking of which, I mean that is one of the the mantras I say. The, the people who ask for my advice is say, okay, tell me your numbers. <clears throat> do you do take your blood ketone, right. you know, and glucose, and have you calculated your macros? And you're tra- checking, you're tracking your macros. Maybe not forever, but you've done it intensely for a period of time. And you'll come back to that. What do you require? I, I'm going to call them patients. I know you call them clients. Um, what do you require of your patients to? to monitor do you encourage them are you saying hey it's required you know here's your spreadsheet kiddo and in this column goes blood glucose and this column goes blood ketones and this is you know how we're going to calculate your macros do you do you lay it out saying this is required or are you saying Yeah,
1: yeah good good question like that the uh the um, study at Cedar Sinai that I mentioned earlier the clinical trial there they do give them a worksheet I don't give people a worksheet I suggest that they use that tool chronometer record because then then I'm not getting I'm not having to spend time getting up to speed with everybody's individual spreadsheets and how they're laid out and what what they're tracking instead if they put it in into a, a noting chronometer I have a, um, a professional version of that that I can go in and and take a look in a heartbeat and see what they're doing, and track the trends and all that. So, so yeah, I do like people to track, but there are people that are not gonna do that. They see that as a burden, um, but I'm not gonna work with somebody who's not testing at least their urine ketones. I have to have some data. So if so, I take them where they're, where they're at and move them along. I highly encourage, I send everybody the information about the testing. It's in my book about the testing. This is, I really feel it's important if you're going to get the best feedback, both personally and, you know, for me working with somebody, that, that's where I'm going to get the feedback um, on whether this is working or what we have to change. To give you an example, I got an email from somebody this morning who's really low weight. I'm concerned about this. I, I didn't move her to a uh, rigorous ketogenic diet. I started with low carb because I don't want her to lose just even a single ounce. And what she sends me this morning is the results of her testing with her ketone levels at four. I'm concerned because if her ketone levels are at four, it's because she's accessing her limited um, uh, body stores of of fat right now. And I don't want her to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's like, mm, we got to get you back into a much lower level. I just want you on the threshold of ketosis. I just want your body to be in this fat burning mode. But we want to supply the fat through the diet not through the accessing your body stores of it. So, yes, that's an incredibly important tool for her, whereas if somebody is like a BMI of over 30, which, uh, you know, it's very heavy, uh, I don't really care. I know that if they just limit the carbs, they're going to make great ketones out of their body fat, and they're going to lose weight rapidly, which is okay with me in the beginning. They're, they're going to make that transition to ketosis. They're going to be making great ketones. It's going to be therapeutic for body and mind. And, uh, and, you know, and we'll shape the plan over the next couple of months so that they start to understand better. So they get over the terror of the diagnosis and the fear of not doing this right. And they just cut the carbs, which is the most important thing to get into ketosis. That's the thing that's going to get you there. And then we, we have the luxury of time to shape it. Whereas the first example I used, we don't have a lot of luxury of time here. She continues to lose weight. She's not going to be able to do any form of this diet.
0: Right. Right. You lead me to another point. Do you have an interpretation of numbers, blood ketone reading specifically, that you go above a certain point, you're accessing body fat below a certain point, you know, at the threshold, kind of like, uh, was it in the Virta study, they were, the average was like 0. 0.6. So to me, that's at the edge, at the lower edge. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Is it because there's so many people and so you kind of go to the, go to the mean, which is, a, you know, it becomes lower and lower and lower. Uh, it certainly doesn't talk about ideal. I don't know if anybody knows where the ideal is, but do you have a sort of a handle on how you would interpret numbers?
1: Yeah, I, I do. And the Verda information—the the, they were surprised that um, uh, people even at the below their previously assumed threshold of 0.5 millimoles for ketones. So people as low as I believe it was 0.3 are getting results from that. So in, in other words, it's just as long as you've made the shift, you're going to you know see these improvements in uh, diabetes, which is what they're looking at. So they are not paying attention to protein uh, in the way that we do for cancer. And they have very good reasons for that. I'm not faulting them in the least on that. You know, They have really good science behind that. So they're not concerned about protein being high because they're not concerned with the effect it might have on cancer. So that's a a whole different ballgame. Their data is very valuable in the fact that so many of their participants are women is important because they're also tracking hormone data, which mm. I think is when that starts to roll out, that's be amazing, amazing. <laughs> I, agree. I agree, I agree. Not just for their world but for my world as well because yep. I, one of my jobs is to tell women that they're different from men and, you know, I don't want you fasting the way that guys do. I don't want you to have one meal a day. I want you to spread that out over a couple of meals. We're yeah. not built for that. We're uh, Evolutionary changes – um, ha, have, have, separated our physiology enough so that there are, again, nuances for this that are applied to men and to women. Okay. So, um, let's see, I'm getting a little off track here, but no,
0: that was good. Basically you're saying your interpretation of numbers. No, that was very important. What you just said completely.
1: Yeah. So, so, um, you know, Dr. Seyfried has the glucose ketone index, which yep. I think is very important for brain cancer. We really got to be got to tighten this up so much. It's got to be a very rigorous diet to have effect in brain cancer. Um, but you're looking at brain cancer having a prognosis of like 14.6 months. So, anything we can do, you know, to to get it out two years, three years, four years is uh, extremely important. And I see the best outcomes with people who are able to limit both carbs and protein, keep their protein really low, but sufficient. Um, and systemic cancers, I, I'm more liberal, but still not uh, Not unlimited protein. Um, So yeah, so like the therapeutic benefit of fasting is extremely high ketones and low glucose, and so that's another. I'm glad you brought it up because that's another important part of of this. We didn't do it with our son. I don't know if it would have made a difference with a child, Um, but. All of the people that I work with, I bring up this whole idea of intermittent fasting and I also bring up that bulletproof uh, coffee model. Um, So, you know, stopping eating at dinner, you know, hopefully eating dinner early enough in the uh, late, you know, either late afternoon or very early evening so that you can allow for three or four hours before bedtime. Again, this has to do with the signaling, whether we're signaling our bodies. That we have like a bountiful supply of nutrients, or is austerity time. So you want to go into your sleep period overnight. You're fasting overnight, um, already having digested that, that partially, at least partially digested that food, moving it along. So then, that overnight period, and then in the morning, continuing with that strict fat burning by only adding fats you're not adding any protein or carb with that bulletproof drink in the morning and that allows you to delay your first intake of real of a real meal that's going to have carbon protein in it so that you are ideally going for like 14 or 16 or for some people some guys even 18 hours of daily fasting i think that's that's an important part of healthy aging as well as um uh, you know, as uh, for cancer. And, I, you know, I think this is an incredibly important thing for, for older people that want to maintain their cogn- cognition beyond, Clearly. you know, that, yeah, yep. I think all those diseases of aging and neurodegeneration um, that Im- impair our cognitive function can be vastly improved. So as far as like, you know, getting those ketone levels up. So for, for people that can't uh, you know are, are struggling in the beginning or need to have like periods of time before therapy where their ketones need to be higher I think that's a great place to use something like a, a an exogenous ketone supplement use it judiciously and in small amounts um, or to you know encourage the um, uh, conversion of um, uh, the medium chain triglycerides into ketones by just using MCT oils and coconut oil and whatever to to encourage that uh, our bodies to make uh, ketones from that. So it's not always coming strictly through the diet. And they don't do that in the verdict group. They're not looking at exogenous ketones or even uh, MCT oil or, um, you know, and and that again, that's a clear separation between what they're doing and what we're doing in the cancer world.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, The whole MCT diet idea came was 1976. I think it was for the uh, epilepsy. Right. I, I thought that you know, you, you, these little concepts are sort of an isolated contexts, uh, but I think that they can be brought in. And so there is about, you know, let's have a, an oil, uh, it was MCT, so C8 and C10 primarily, um, that would convert to ketones faster than other fats. So simply saturated fats go faster than all the other ones. So mm-hmm. it, with the idea, well, this child, primarily for pediatrics, could then liberalize the rest of their diet. You know, maybe have some of that pizza or something else, and not be so ostracized, and and have be the kid that has the weird diet, sitting at the lunch table by themselves, kind of thing. And so now, now you take the idea of of having a diet, big circle around the whole uh, idea, uh, being more ketogenic. So you have a ketogenic diet, but now there's components of it could be uh, made more ketogenic. So you by bringing in certain oils. And I think about the idea of. Uh, a calorie, you know, now to cancer, uh, or a calorie re- reduced diet, this would perhaps make that even a more efficient, uh, form is my thinking. It says now you have something in there that you don't have to have as much of, meaning fewer calories of to help create that ketosis. Any thoughts on that? Or is that too? Uh,
1: yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think anybody's ever brought this up, <laughs> but, um, when, when I had that amazing result with Rafi, mm-hmm. um, d- when that happened, I, I begged, I literally begged um, the keto nutritionist at the Charlie Foundation to just talk to me. I'd sign any waiver, pay her <laughs> any she wanted. I just wanted to talk with her because I knew I was doing it wrong. I just wasn't sure what – I knew – I should say didn't really know I was doing it wrong. I knew I could be doing it better. And um, when when I learned that I wasn't really doing that ratio right – uh, she said, okay, let's – instead of focusing on the ratio, let's uh, add MCT oil. And that's I—that's what we did. Now, my son was very tolerant. Kids are very, very tolerant of yeah. MCT oil. Yeah. It's in breast milk. It's what they give premature babies because yeah. they can digest it so well. Um, and and uh, And the ketones are just amazing. And so, yeah, my son was taking four tablespoons of MCT oil a day. So that certainly did boost his – ketosis and that also has an inverse relationship on glucose if you have more energy supplied by the ketones Mm. you don't need to make as much glucose in the liver through gluconeogenesis so the signaling changes there's much more to it than that carl i'm not going to pretend it's that simple but yes in going to the four tablespoons that said a lot of the older adults i'm working with are not Tolerant of even a single teaspoon mm. of this stuff, it gives them GI distress and yep. diarrhea. Yep. So then we can use an MCT powder, or we go to coconut oil because it's it's uh, even though it's less ketogenic. It still has a lot of benefits to it in, in cancer. So, uh, yeah, this this whole idea of bo- boosting ketones by using the MCTs or the, you know, the C8s, like you said, the ca- mm-hmm. caprylic acid, that's caprylic acid. Yep. Yep. Um, confusing to people because we're calling it caprylic acid and really what it is. It's a fatty acid, specifically a medium chain fatty acid, but that's what fats are. They're yep. fatty acids.
0: Yep. No, I agree. One thing that I I, I plug in there as a as a, I'm a contextual guy, you know, so we we break things down. Got to have the macros, and we start to think of nutrients as this isolated sort of piano keys in front of us, and we need so many of them. Are, and so for the C eight, which I'm a big fan of C eight, but C ten has its value as well, certainly. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, we make a mayo. You know, I mean, it's uh, so we make a mayo of C8 with avocado oil. We put in some uh-huh. collagen. And what's the point of me even mentioning that is because, you know, people need to know how to take this stuff. They're certainly not going to guzzle. I mean, so. I mean that you're right. Uh, pediatrics in general are one extreme. They're very tolerant. Look, what you are going to take most people are not going to take four tablespoons of any oil. You know, whether it's avocado oil or olive oil, they're going to go, "Are you crazy?" You know, maybe some goes on my salad. By the way, did you notice the vinegar there too? Um, but and so making the mayo and you try to up the C eight as much as possible to keep the the form and there's ways of doing that. I find that that's kind of a another way for. That people who have difficulty taking it to take it.
1: Yes, that's that is a way to take it. You can put it into a mayo. You can put it into a salad dressing. Mm. We used to put it into some uh, a treat that we made our son with gelatin. We'd use uh, nice. MCT oil, um, and um, you can't. Uh, you most people. They think of it in terms of putting it in their coffee, their bulletproof coffee, hmm. um, and that's that is one thing to do with it. But you can do all these other things. Some people right. will put a little bit of it in a, in their broth. Right. It doesn't have any flavor. It doesn't, you know, doesn't detract from the flavor at all. Right. Uh, so there's a number of ways you can work it in. Uh, some people will put it in a shake or a smoothie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, macadamia not hummus. It, it, the recipe calls for olive oil. You can do some combination. Of olive or avocado and MCT oil, mm. so there's there's all kinds of ways to sneak it in yep. um, over yep. the course of the day. It doesn't just have to be in that cup of coffee in the morning.
0: No, I agree. the The art of that is a is a big deal. So my 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 last question off to the side. If you come up to your with your own column of what I would call trigger foods, so I'll give my example. My example are nuts. You know, so when I got started in this, I go great. Look at all these things I can make with all these different nut butters. It's like Boy, that was a very slippery slope. You know, they didn't work for me. I mean, I loved them all and I made fancy little fat bombs and all these other things, which I do not do anymore. But it it was, it would, it would lead me quickly out of ketosis because it was kind of like the story for the the cow milk products, the dairy products. It was, I want more of that. Um, Do you, do you have, I mean, do you, is that even any, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I actually, um, there's another part to that besides the overconsumption and that is that most nuts are high in oxalic acid and oxalates and um and you know in the a diet really high in oxalates might contribute to um uh, kidney stones in somebody who's predisposed to kidney stones plus the diet has a diuretic effect so you know we know that um um poor hydration is also a contributor there so I, when I work with somebody, I, I do um, uh, get some sense of uh, how many, you know, all kinds of nuts. It's one of the questions, you know, what do you eat for nuts? And I, I, I shape that, uh, including the limit. So a limit for a guy who's six foot three and very active might be different than a woman who's five foot four and mostly sedentary. I mean, I, I don't want to draw that. There are a lot of very active five foot four women too, yeah, but yep, I'm yep. just drawing the size difference more. Um, and the and the energy needs um, are you know are there, um, but you know I go on to uh, I was looking at chronometer for a new client. He was eating um, I'm not exaggerating. He was eating four cups of nuts a day between nuts and nut products. It was four cups a day, and it was like my my concern for him was extreme on many different levels. One that his cancer was progressing, um, and he and that was the only way he was trying to stay plant based, and that was the only way he could see of getting more fats into his diet. Um, so I was like, no, no, we got to rework this, we got to make this more livable, and I want you to keep your nut intake to a cup or less a day. Whereas for somebody else, I might say a quarter of a cup a day or a half a cup a day. And also, we, we know that macadamias are the, are the highest in good fats and the lowest in carbs in pro- – not close to the lowest in carbs in protein um but also low in you know lower in oxalates than than the other nuts so um if you're going to overeat nuts especially in the beginning or if you're going to have them as a backup food to uh, to add some fats to a meal because that's an easy way to do it without making the meal greasy then you know make it macadamia nuts um so yeah and as far as like if somebody's not getting the results that they want uh, you know since i individualize this so much and if we're not Getting there, I will say, let's take the nuts out for a few days and see what happens. And dairy, those are the two things, nuts and dairy. They come out. And if you look at um, some of the, uh, the metabolic approaches to different disease states, they may start with no nuts or dairy and then introduce them further down the road. Uh, but it, it, you know, and if you just tell someone that you want to eliminate it for a short period of time, it's easier than saying, okay, we're going to start this diet without these things. So you just say, okay, let's go four days without it and see if these numbers change at all. And that's where the feedback is so important. So to them, not just to me, but they see a difference. If they see a difference um, in, in their numbers or in their weight loss, if weight loss is part of this, uh, then they're more likely to keep it out or limit it than if uh, I'm telling them, Let's start without these things. Then it feels like I'm depriving them. And I, I want to go back to one other thing you said, Carl, about mm-hmm. being the weird kid, the, 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 you know, the kid having the mm-hmm. weird diet. Yep. Um, this is true for adults as well as it is for children. The, mm. the, the positive language that you do there for your own advocacy is this is certainly different, but it's special. It's not it's, – it, and it's health-promoting. So I can keep in my mind that what I'm doing is health promoting. And then when I'm out to, to dinner with somebody and they see that I don't have any starches on my plate and I've had, you know, and I'm not partaking of dessert or whatever. So there's still that that little bit of uncomfortableness, you know, it's like, a, a you know. I'm doing this for my health, so does that mean I'm accusing them of not being healthy? No. You know, you don't want to go there. Right, right. But I'm also not going to eat these foods just to make somebody else happy about their own diet. That's not going to happen. Yep. So my diet is different and it's special, but it's, you know, it's not it's not going to make me feel weird. Right. And, and, and that was something that I had to depend on my son's school to do, is like – you can you have the you know you have the ability to either make him feel odd and you know and yes. not a part of his peer group or we can make this special and you know one of the little tricks for kids I'm going to throw out there is like I I bought a Dan and yogurt container and I <laughs> dumped out the yogurt and I put his sour cream in there with um you know with a really finely sliced strawberry and he could present to the school that he was doing something that was like peer related, but it was, it was still his healthy diet.
0: Yep. No, I hear that. Yeah. No, my reference is more about my memory of uh, peer pressure from uh, inadvertently and sometimes cruel other children, not being able to quite understand the larger context, but yeah, no, that's a good point for adults as well. Yeah. Especially that Miriam. You've given me a wonderful hour of your life, you know, and uh, we've gone from topic to topic to topic, and uh, you're so full. I want to bring it to an end now and cover some things that I forgot to cover before. I haven't even mentioned it publicly here that you had a great TED Talk that came out in February. You can get that on on Google and your book that came out a few months before, uh, Keto for Cancer, Keto ketogenic metabolic therapy as a targeted nutritional strategy. It's a a huge title, but it's worth every word on every page. Um, I want to thank you very, very much, Miriam. Um, Thank
1: you, Carl. This has been great. I I (laughs) loved talking with you when we did the roundtable that day. You had great questions then, and I was looking forward to this interview.
0: Likewise, very much. All right, till next time. I hope I can reserve the, the right sometime in the future we can talk again. You bet. All right. You
1: bet, because, uh, you know, I'm. Uh, there's constantly, there's new information out there. So, yeah, it'd be great.
0: Good. All right. Till next time. Thanks again. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath, same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions, and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy, week after week.